This is Michael Osterlink, and we're having another dose of fine wisdom. That's going to be the hashtag fine, F-E-I-N, wisdom. I'm here with Bruce Fine, constitutional scholar. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well this morning. Thank you, Michael. Excellent. So a few days ago, you and I sat down and talked about Prime Minister Netanyahu's upcoming speech to Congress. It's now the day after. What are your thoughts? Well, I think um, in a, from a 50,000-foot angle, uh, Michael, you know, it demonstrates this psychology of empire that exaggerates fear, you know, 50 or 100-fold to justify what's the equivalent of war or an attempt to dominate the entire world. And let me try to be specific with regard to Netanyahu's speech, which was overwhelmingly applauded by the Congress of the United States, uh, the Republicans especially. Uh, but he was trying to describe Iran as this superpower of the world, that it was on a conquest of everywhere. And he was saying we conquered Yemen, conquered Syria through Hezbollah, conquered Iraq, they're clearly on the march, which is an absurdity. Now, Iran is a decrepit country. Uh, if you take the nuclear arsenals of the United States and Israel combined, you know, it's like 5,000 nuclear weapons. You know, Iran at present has none. We dwarf Israel and the United States collectively. Any Iranian uh, military uh, on the ground, on uh, the, the sea, uh, in the air. Uh, Iran's economy is decrepit. Uh, the plunging oil prices. You've got state-controlled monopolies and corruption. It's very backward. You've got a huge brain drain as well uh, because the professionals with talent have left this rather despotic uh, country. It is not a superpower. It's, is it dangerous like any other country? Possibly, yes. Uh, but there's no indication that it is triumphing around the world. Indeed, if you look at the, um, the implacable opposition that Iran confronts in its own region because of the Sunni-Shia split, and Shias are a clear minority amongst Muslim uh, sects, uh, maybe 15%, and the Sunni are 85 and Sunnis view the Shias as infidels. And so wherever Iran looks in that region, it confronts enemies like Islamic State, of, of Iraq and Syria, ISIS or Saudi Arabia. You know, in terms of numbers, they're clearly um, uh, outgunned by the Sunni opponents. And they may well be defeated. Their arch enemy is ISIS itself. And so this is not a country that is even dominating the region. It's very much uh, weakened. Uh, aside from the fact that it has its own domestic uh, minorities, uh, Baluchis and Azeris uh, and Kurds that further um, create a centrifugal uh, forces that uh, inhibit the ability of Iran to project itself strongly. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that Iran is any kind of angelic country. No nation is. Nations have interests. Nations crave power for the sake of power. Uh, but what we've done traditionally is use the idea of deterrence, especially nuclear deterrence, uh, to prevent the kind of aggression that we would all uh, regret, certainly against the United States, but even against Israel. I mean, Israel's got 200 nuclear weapons. And Iran has not attempted aggression against Israel, not attempted aggression against the United States. And if you look at, you know, our, when we're talking specifically about Netanyahu and nuclear deterrence and, and uh, basically saying that if, uh, if Iran walks away from an agreement that Netanyahu finds acceptable, uh, war is the next step, uh, that it is, I think, highly improbable. Uh, you can't ever reduce probabilities to zero. Uh, that Iran would ever be so foolish as to use even a nuclear weapon, assume it acquired one, 
uh, in any kind of offensive capacity. Let's just review the historical record, uh, the messages if we can, and that was that Netanyahu correctly advised yesterday. Uh, we've only had one country in the history of the world that used nuclear weapons. That's the United States at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's like 70 years ago. And since that time, there's never been another use. Nuclear deterrence has worked. It worked against the Soviet Union even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they had thousands of weapons. At present, we've had no nuclear exchanges, even though countries like China have nuclear weapons, India, Pakistan, North Korea have nuclear weapons, Russia has nuclear weapons. Uh, none of them have been used, certainly against the United States, um, as well as any other countries, because of the fear of, of nuclear retaliation, which is really quite strong uh, and effective. So why would we think that of all the countries in the world, suddenly Iran would also not be daunted by the fear of nuclear retaliation and destruction, even if it acquired one nuclear weapon and maybe would think about using it on one occasion? Uh, I think this is ridiculous, uh, and we then are basically setting ourselves up, in my judgment, uh, based upon this exaggerated fear of Iran, even exaggerated fear of nuclear weapons, as bad as they are, um, uh, to engage in another war against Iran, which would be a catastrophe, in, in my judgment. And that was the <coughs> basically the standard Netanyahu was stating yesterday. Although he said the choice is not between you know, a bad deal and war, uh, basically that's what he did say the choice was. Uh, because he was basically, without any foundation, suggesting if you just shout at Iran, they'll just agree to a great nuclear deal to dismantle their nuclear program. When <laughs> the likelihood of that happened has got to be close to zero. It also, I think, demonstrates his own ignorance of history by failing to appreciate the rationality of Iran's fear that without a nuclear capability, the United States and Israel would be the first ones to attack, overthrow the regime, and, and destroy the country. That's what we did in Libya when Libya abandoned its weapons of mass destruction. We have a history of interfering in Iranian affairs. We overthrew Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1953, ended up with the Shah of Iran. We have a policy of regime change in Iran. So, of course, they look around and say, all right, you haven't invaded North Korea, despite is perhaps the most cruel, unspeakably bad country in the world, because it has nuclear weapons. And every country is going to be interested in self-preservation. And one of the things that's often overlooked is that the Iranian people are virtually universally approving of Iran's nuclear program. Even a Nobel Prize winner like Shireen Abadi, critic of the regime, uh, virtually nobody says we need to shut down our nuclear program because they have pride as an independent country and they saw how they were manipulated and invaded by the United States, or maybe not invaded, overthrown in 1953 and now the U.S. was manipulating the Shah uh, with weapon sales and otherwise. They want their own country and it's quite rational given the history to be fearful that without a nuclear capability they're going to be vulnerable to the, on the, uh, uh, the war scale of the United States and Israel. So it leads me to two questions. Uh, I'll start the latter first. I remember during our conversation we had a few days ago, pre previous to Netanyahu's speech, uh, you had mentioned his speech to Congress about uh, Iraq, and he was, mis you know, everything he claimed to be true turned out not to be true. So why give him even more of a bully pulpit to mm -hmm. continue to say stuff? And I mentioned yesterday or the day before too that I've been working against war with Iran since 2005, 
And I can recall almost every year since then that Iran is only a year away, 18 months away, two years away, maybe three years away from a nuclear weapon. Um, it, you know, this has been going on for at least eight years since I've been working on it, uh, 10 years since I've been working on this. You know, are they, you know, how, how seriously should we take any of these um, proclamations that Iran is so close? I mean, it's just given kind of as a fact that they're only a year away. I understand that, and it's also, I think it goes back before then, even in the administration of Ronald Reagan, Secretary of State George Shultz was also warning about a nuclear capability. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, and we need to remember, you know, all countries have ulterior motives. Of course they want to. If you're trying to isolate Iran, you want to try to paint the worst case scenario. Uh, it's like the Dick Cheney 1% doctrine. If the likelihood is 1% that something is true, you treat it as gospel. I mean, that's a frightening proposition. You know, if 1% the fear that somebody is attacking you, you then go ahead and treat it as gospel and respond by killing them or assaulting them. I mean, you'd have literally mayhem if that were the standard. But that's what superpowers do. They have these double standards. And it especially becomes problematic, Michael, as you suggest, when all these conjectures are based upon secret evidence no one's got any access to. I mean, these are the same secret evidence that gave us weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that didn't exist. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're always wrong, although most of the time they are. They, are. they were wrong with the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Um, but it means that we need to be skeptical. And the burden of proof you know, is, is on them to, you know, to demonstrate why, for example, Iran would be different from other nations in conducting foreign policy, which means deterrence will work, as it's worked uh, you know, with all other countries of the world. Um, and I want to make one point, however, Michael, that's important. And that is, you can never have a risk-free existence. We can't say the risk of Iran doing something crazy is zero. So we can't say the risk of the president of the White House doing something crazy is zero. We don't say because he, he maybe could declare martial law tomorrow, let's impeach him. No, you actually have to act and plan your life on plausible likelihoods and, and actions. Uh, and when you get into the never-never land of just if you have a very powerful imagination, you could think of something bad that could go happen. A at that point, then you've destroyed any notion of the rule of law or restraint because uh, you could justify going after and destroying anything, anytime, any place by saying, well, we just don't know for 100% certain. You might right. turn out to be very, very evil. Another Osama bin Laden, we're not taking chances, we'll destroy you. Well, let me speak to that. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that you, you see Iran as a rational actor. Mm -hmm. They're acting in their, in their national interest, uh, and they've never shown themselves to act in any other way. Mm -hmm. yeah. However, there is some folks who are highly supportive of military engagement with Iran who look at some of the uh, Shia religious fundamentalists who, and I don't know the, mm -hmm. I don't know the religion well enough to articulate it in any depth, but I, the return of the imam, mm -hmm. and that certain things need to happen for that to occur, and that a war, similar to the you know Christian ideas of the return of Christ, um, you know, there are certain steps that are necessary to lead to these things to occur, and a, and a war could be those steps. So there might be people inside Iran who are not rational actors, mm -hmm. or pre-modern in their thinking, and they might have their fingers on the levers of power, and could see utilizing nuclear weapons towards those ends. To bring to bring forth, you know, a, a mythic, uh, mystical Armageddon or something yeah. of that sort. Surely true, mm -hmm. and I have no doubt that you could find a few crazy people in every 
uh, institution, including in the United States of America. You have people who religiously say, oh, well, we need to have some huge Armageddon before we can get the second coming of Christ or something of that mm -hmm. sort. But they have never, and, and that's been true, Michael, from the beginning of time. Uh, there'll be those who say, yes, you know, God is punishing us and we'll never get to the promised land or we'll never have the Prince of Peace unless we destroy the whole world and permit God to start again. Uh, but they are always a very, very tiny minority because there's one rule of human existence, self-preservation. It's the overwhelming 99.99% phenomenon in all the species. No one likes to crave you know, self-destruction. I shouldn't say no one. But it's a really, really tiny, tiny minority. And that one tiny, 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 you know, craving suicide um, uh, has never and, and would never reach the, the, the citadels of, of power authority to launch a nuclear weapon, for instance. Even someone as demented as Adolf Hitler refrained from using chemical weapons in World War II because he, he was in World War I and he saw the adverse effects of chemical weapons, a blowback, if you will, uh, on the battlefield at that time. And he's about as extreme as you can get at caring basically <laughs> for, <coughs> for nothing. Uh, but I don't think uh, those particular religious fanatics that you've described uh, are unique in the annals of, of, uh, uh, of world power. And others, uh, you know, other people at extremist groups with different, whether it's religious or non-religious um, uh, 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 fanaticism, uh, may crave the destruction of the world so we can begin anew. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense, in my judgment, to craft a foreign policy, especially one that the alternative is war. And who knows what would happen with war? Because that's, that's basically what we're asking for, um, is that either Iran abandons its nuclear program, holds itself out like Qaddafi did, abandoning WMD, which they're not going to do, or we say we will not permit you to acquire just a nuclear capability. And the only way you can do that is by war. Well, thank you, Bruce. You're also the author of a few books. Tell us about your books, and we'll um, find out more information about your work. Yes, if you want uh, further elaboration, this is on psychology of empire, where we're going. Uh, the best works of mine to read, uh, American Empire Before the Fall and Constitutional Peril, the Life and Death Struggle of Our Constitution and Democracy. You can buy those on uh, Amazon, and you can visit my website if you want to buy them there, get signed copies, www. BruceFineLaw.com. F-E-I-N. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Bruce. And remember to follow this on the hashtag on Twitter, Fine Wisdom. That's F-E-I-N Wisdom.